If you have a, a Bible with you, 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to go to in just a moment. Um, I did want to say something right up front as we start. Uh, this moment in time, uh, at least in my lifetime, and then maybe even shorter than my lifetime, because I don't pay attention to these things until you're a certain age or a certain place in life. But I, I've been thinking, and I, I really do believe that in the coming months and in the coming weeks, and as we round out the end of 2020, that any kind of unity, any togetherness, any reuniting that we experience is going to be such a magnificent gift of the Spirit of God. Because since I've been old enough to pay attention or think about these things, I'm not sure that I've ever experienced more personally or socially or emotionally politically or attitudinally, and I do think that's a word, I don't know if I've ever felt or sensed a world that seems more right for or more just complete outward division. We're separate in a million different ways. And if that's been on your heart, or if that's something that you're paying attention to and watching then I would invite you to, to think on these things and to pray with us. My guess is that you've probably been wondering or if you're thinking, well, how should we think about these things or what can we do or where should we be? Or maybe you'd say, no, 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 I have a million thoughts about these things. Where can I proclaim them or where can I say them or who can I convince? And I just want to say right up front before we dive into 1 Peter chapter 3, that over the last number of weeks, it's really been a month now, we started 1 Peter chapter 2, and I paused there, instead of preaching what was originally supposed to be a number of verses, I paused just because the phrase to put away all malice seemed so appropriate at the time to consider and to actually work against hate that is evident, but then hate that is harbored as well. Last week, or a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Zach talked through unjust authority and how do we submit ourselves to emperors or to masters who are unjust. And so we've been thinking about these things, and they've been stirring now for weeks and weeks, but maybe what you're wondering or what you're thinking is, well, what are we going to say specifically right now in this, this particular moment? And we're not going to be able to cover it all, though I think 1 Peter chapter 3 has a ton to say about the moment that we're living in. I did want to say a couple of things. As a church or as a, a leadership team and as a pastor, we've been thinking about, well, what do we say and how definitive... Uh, what's, the, what's the list of things that are most helpful and most definitive? We're going to send some things out this week, I think, that will hopefully shape some ways for us to respond. In addition to that, if you're going to listen to this sermon here in a couple of minutes, and we're going to talk about repaying evil for evil and having sympathy and compassion, but if you're thinking, no, we need to be more specific than that, tomorrow morning, we're going to record a podcast specifically related to Black Lives Matter, and what do we believe about racism in America, and how does this look in the church and outside of the church? What do we think about these things? And I hope that that's a blessing to you. I hope that it's a help to you. We're going to try to do our best to talk through these uh, in a way that is humble, and in a way that uh, seeks to learn from one another uh, and from Scripture. And so, in case you're wondering or you're thinking, well, what about X? Uh, we're not ignoring these things, and we don't, know, we don't know yet all of the avenues that God might lead us to, uh, to, to help or to, to move 
in particular directions. But this week, there'll be a couple of things that come out, and I invite you to to tune in. If you have questions or if you have things that you want to respond to in that, then absolutely please talk with us. But for now, and I think timely, because God's Word is always timely for us, we have a passage of Scripture where Peter is going to give us instructions, a kind of playbook to be people of blessing, to be people that make a difference. And so, because the division of the world, because the fallenness of the world is not a new thing, Peter just wrote an entire chapter plus about all the ways that the ordering of God's world can go wrong. And what do you do when people sin against you and you find yourself tempted, or you're in a world where you just say to yourself, but how do I live right now because this is wrong and broken? Peter just wrote an entire chapter about that, plus some in in chapter 3. And he basically gives a playbook so that when you look back at the chaos of the world, or when you look at your present and consider your place in the world, you could be called to, to be what you are, which is a person who is called to be a blessing. I don't know if you've ever been in a tough situation or been on a project that required a ton of work. I mean, these are very pointed, personal, sort of churchy examples, but I think through I think there are things like the first time that we ever said, hey, let's host a fall festival. There'll be a neighborhood party. We'll invite everyone that we can. We'll celebrate the common graces that God gives to his people. We'll do that. And then you never imagine or think about all of the work that's involved in doing something like that. And then for weeks ahead of time and then during the event itself, there are these moments where I'm struck by and I look out and I just see people taking the burden that is the big project in the work and they're carrying them themselves and they're stepping forward and they're doing it without a desire for thanks or glory. And afterward, what ends up happening is we look back and we just point out and we think, man, remember this person? What a blessing they were. You remember this person? Remember what they did? And what happens is, is you can look back and you can point out the moments that you would say to someone, man, there was chaos, but this person didn't contribute to the chaos. They helped to relieve it. And that ultimately is what we're called to be as Christians. So we're told in Scripture clearly that this world is insane, that sin and the way it's perpetuated is insanity. The question becomes, what kind of people are the the Christians supposed to be? What kind of place is a church? What are we supposed to be offering to the world? And Peter's going to tell us that we are called to be a blessing So that in the final judgment day, when Jesus comes back and he puts everything right, and he will, there is not one word, not one deed, not one bit of evil done or good left undone that Jesus will not make perfectly right. And when he does that, we will look back and the desire, what God's heart is in leaving his church in the world, is that we could look back and what we find is, is that if people disagree with us or not, they'll look back and they'll say, you know what? Christians, I don't understand the stuff that they say or that they believe, and I didn't follow that same religion. But let me tell you what they were. When there was chaos, they were a blessing. They were an encouragement. They took burdens and things that were terrible and made them less so. And that's the spirit, I think, I want us to to read the first few verses of this section of 1 Peter. It starts in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm just going to read down through verse 12. And I want us to be reading this with an idea to say, how can we be what we're called to be? Which is, can be a, a blessing. So this is the eighth verse of 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, 
sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I'm going to pray as I, as I often do, but I want to note that one of the requirements or one of the things we're called to in 1 Peter chapter 3 is to have a humble mind, a tender heart. And these are the things, these are the approaches, the postures when we come to read Scripture that I pray for so often for us as a church, and I'm going to do it again. I want to pray that God gives us a mind that is ready to receive, ears that are open enough to listen well and to hear from the Spirit of God, and then a heart that is, as Peter describes, is tender and ready to be, ready to be impacted, ready to be molded by, by truth. And I, I want that to be the case so, so badly, and I also know that it's impossible for me to do it, so let's pray that God does it within us. Father, we ask that these characteristics would describe us. We confess that the world around us and oftentimes our own hearts do not reflect these things. We are often lacking compassion. We often have decided, hardened hearts. And so, God, I pray that as we read the Bible today, as we've come to and we present ourselves to you, we pray that we would not come in a spirit of judgment where we're lording it over you or Scripture itself. God, make us humble, make us servants. We pray that the Word of God would form us. It would read us more than we read it. I pray for a level of kind of honesty, of engagement with the Bible. Help us to do that. God, we're your people. These are your words to us. You're our Father. We thank you that you're present. You're with us. Thank you that you are perfect and just. Thank you for your grace, this undeserved favor that you give us. We, don't, we haven't earned any of this. So God, as your people, we want to love Jesus more. We want to represent Him in the world. We want to be a people of blessing. That's our hope. It's our desire. So Spirit of God, come rest on us, change us, and make us you desire. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 3 says, here's what needs to happen. He's, he's acknowledging that in the world there will be evil. And in the, in the world, there will be evil that will be responded to by evil. In other words, there's going to be a constant cacophony, this chaos of fallenness and brokenness. And if that doesn't describe the world that we're living in right now, I don't know what does. And Peter's acknowledging this. And then he's saying, here's what needs to be done or thought of. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have a spirit inside of you, remember what you were called to. You should be the kind of person that blesses. 
So what I want to do is I want to walk through these verses and think of, I mean, really just the first verse, verse 8, finally all of you have these things. There's hours worth of discussion right here. I promise this won't be hours. But I want to take time and just carefully walk through, and this is a playbook of sorts. This is a toolbox to say, if I'm going to march out into the world, how do I be a blessing? I would confess, as someone who, who cares about the church, who cares about its witness in the world, who cares about the fallenness of the world, about the things that we see around us, I often feel helpless and hopeless when it comes to knowing, how do I make a difference? Here's the thing about the world, it very rarely shows up at your door and says, all right, here's my exact needs, could you show up for the next 45 minutes and here's how to fix them? So how to be a blessing in the world is difficult. That's what I'm saying. Even if you get to the place where here's what I know needs to be fixed, how to actually be a blessing is difficult. And Peter says, here's what you need to do. Focus on being these kind of people because this is what you're called to. And so I'm just going to go through them. I want to start by acknowledging that Peter uses an interesting word in verse 8. After talking about the world that's crazy and the, the orders of authority that can get out of whack, he uses this word, finally. And I just want to say out loud that I'm grateful for this word because as someone who teaches consistently and very often has to say things like this, I'm sorry I went five to six minutes longer than I wanted to. And then I feel awkward because I'm really kind of lying because no one else has the microphone but me. So if I went five or six longer minutes longer, it's because I wanted to. You see how that works? It's a really bad game to play. But there I am and I'm thinking to myself, man, I just went a little bit longer than I wanted to go. Well, let me point to you the evidence of the Bible. Peter himself, the great apostle, the called one, he opens verse 8 in 1 Peter chapter 3 by saying, finally, and then he writes for two more chapters. And I just wanted to point this out because when you're trying to encourage or exhort someone, sometimes you can't wrap it up. Real, So maybe he says, ultimately, here, finally, he's definitely shifting in some measure to saying, here's the summary statement. We must be different. We must seek to bless. So finally, all of you, and then here's the list of things, and I'm going to talk through each of these characteristics and consider. I'm going to invite you to consider, does this mark us? He starts out by saying, have unity of mind. And I believe this is tied to the, the end, the, the next bracket at the bottom of this list of things with a humble mind. He says, have unity of mind and also have a humble mind. But right at the start, if you were someone who says, okay, I'm in, I'm following Jesus, I know what he's done for me, I, I can have faith for this, let's do this, how do we be a blessing in the world? And the first thing you read is, all we have to do is agree and have the same spirit in mind, and you say, I'm out. It's impossible. How long have you spent in the last year trying to get people to agree on where to go to lunch? Have you ever tried to have a committee or a group or discuss something significant in life and think to yourself, oh, wonderful, everyone is perfectly aligned. I'm so glad we talked about this. Or more than that, that we don't have to talk about this. But unity of mind, this idea that Peter says to us, we should have unity of mind and agree. I can't think of something that seems less obvious in our world today than agreement. But he says, here's what Christians should do. They should seek to be, and I think there's at least a couple of avenues here. I'm going to discuss the first one as being inside the church, but then I'm going to use that as a template to say, 
if we're a certain kind of people inside the church, what does it mean for us without, outside the church? So clearly, I think this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, Christians of all people, stop arguing and disagreeing. Have unity. Think together on things. Strive for this. Pursue understanding. And, unfortunately, in this world, in a fallen place, where there's pride and there's sin and there's all these kinds of things, we have a hard time doing this. I had a professor in seminary. You know, he's not saying this to critique any one particular person or to say, here's how he easily fix it. But he said he has to believe that because the church will be perfectly unified in heaven, right? there's not going to be denominations in heaven, there's not going to be robust, ongoing conversations about every point of doctrine in heaven, because that is the ultimate destiny of the church, then one day, at the end of all things, we're going to look back and we are going to attribute all of our divisions as Christians somewhere along the line, it must have been the result of sin and fallenness. The number of sects of Christianity, the inability for Christians, once you get beyond yourself, and I think if we're honest, sometimes we have a hard time agreeing with ourselves, but even beyond ourselves, the moment you encounter other people, the difficulty that even Christians within the church have to maintain a level of unity is astonishing. We are far too quick to accept disunity. We are far too lazy to do the hard work of listening and learning and pursuing common understanding. We so often say, well, that's unpleasant and I'm done with it. I believe what Peter says to us is that doctrine, a right thinking, a right understanding about Jesus and what he's called us to do and who we are as a church, this needs to be pursued. It's non-optional. So if you're the kind of person who says, you know what, some things are so difficult to understand, I quit trying. I think Scripture would say to you, that's not an option. You don't just get to opt out. I know that feeling. I know the feeling of just saying something like, this seems like there's so much division. And if you want to know how much, how, what division can feel like, especially not only in yourself, but if you've ever tried to, to lead something or to try to shepherd people or care for them, if you have any, have you ever had a moment where you say to someone, hey, I'm curious about something, tell me about it, I really respect you, tell me your opinion. And they run down and they give you this passionate, convicted, wonderfully articulated statement and you say like, oh, that makes a ton of sense, that's amazing. Five minutes later, you bump into someone you equally respect and you say, hey, tell me about this, I just talked to them. Don't you think this? And then they say, oh my goodness, no way, they're so wrong. And they articulate a position that is completely opposite. If you don't think this is possible, just try to help shepherd a church one time and send out a survey. People you love, people you know, people you care about, and you get people passionately writing, writing things to you and saying, I just want you to know, isn't it obvious that? And then sometimes what I want to do is I want to cross-forward things. I just, want to, I just want to say, oh, well, you know what you need? You need a forward. I'm going to forward your email to this person. I'm going to forward your email to this person. Unity can seem impossible. A unity of mind, Peter says, pursue this. Now, I want to say, in relationship to this unity of mind, that all of these characteristics within the church, I have to believe, because Peter says, on the contrary, bless, I have to believe that there's an idea here that if we are a certain kind of people within these walls, 
If we are a church that practices these things, if we say, I have a humble mind, I have a, a desire to learn, I'm pursuing understanding, I want a common knowledge with you, if we operate like that, then by necessity or by habit, this should be the, be the way that we treat people outside of the church. To have a quick ability to disagree and be content with disunity, to say to someone else who has a different perspective of you than you, I don't care what you think, you're crazy, and I'm not going to give any time to understand. This is an unchristian attitude, certainly within the church and without. I would encourage, at a minimum, that if you have been exhausted by, or if you have given yourself permission to give up on understanding the perspective of others, that you are called to better than that. You're to strive for these things, to think together, to invite someone and I don't know why, but especially for Christians, and I'm just going to critique, and I, you know what, this isn't even fair because it's kind of nameless, but I'm totally going there anyway. Let's just say, hypothetically, someone posted publicly some conviction statement, some capital letters, here's what's the truth about the world, don't you know X, Y, Z. If I see someone post like that one more time, and then it finishes with all caps and 17 exclamation points, I'm not discussing this. I'm just theoretically, if this ever happened, you know, I notice, if I see this one more time, I will go crazy. I just, I think to myself, this is, this is unbelievable. Why are you posting publicly and then broadcasting to the world, I'm unwilling to learn? All of you, Peter says, have unity of mind and a humble mind. These things have to be together. I'm not debating this. I'm not discussing this. This is not up for debate. These kind of attitudes, I mean, sure, sometimes if you have to go on and do your job, sure, you can't stand in the parking lot and argue with someone if you're going to get fired. I understand that. But to have an attitude that says something like this, I refuse to learn, I refuse to understand, you are other than me and I reject your perspective out of hand, is an absurd place for a Christian to live. So within the church when there's disagreement, there's disunity. If you encounter a brother or sister in Christ who upon listening to them, your eyes continue to squint. Because we love one another and because we've been called to unity, we would say to them, could you explain more? I, I have a hard time understanding the way that you're at there. Please talk with me about this. I want us to be united, at least in the way that we think. I want to understand you. And because Christians have a habit of doing that with one another, when we encounter people in the world, the way that will be a blessing is we'll say these things to one another. We have an eagerness to learn. We have an eagerness to pursue unity of mind. Of course, yes, with doctrine in the church on issues that are difficult. But I would encourage you, when was the last time in an area of disagreement or an area of disillusionment or when you encountered someone who was other and didn't believe like you, when was the last time you put concerted effort into saying, you know what, I'm going to understand. I want to listen. I want to learn. I'm going to read. The conversations of our thoughts are not subtle, they're not small, they matter intensely. And this unity of mind is needed, a humility of mind is needed in the world so badly. When was the last time you tuned into your news source of choice? 
I'm not going to say a channel or a station or a place or a social media outlet or whatever it is. When is the last time you tuned in to a discussion over some topic where there needs to be unity of understanding and what you thought to yourself was, my, 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 these gentlemen are so humble of mind. Oh, did you hear this lady? I think she really wanted to understand that other person. It's amazing how humble she was. Discussion marked by a pursuit of unity and understanding is one of the greatest needs of our day and age. Instead, what happens is, over and over, we have no examples of discussions taking place except for, here's a talking head, and here's a talking head, or here's a 20-character tweet, and here's a pithy retort, and here's a reply and a subtweet. The examples that are so prevalent in our world have nothing to do with pursuit of understanding and common perspective with the other They're about winning and putting down and scoring points with imaginary people in imaginary places. So Christians, what if, because of the Spirit of God indwelling in us, we had such a habit, such a habit of humility of mind that said something like this. So we have a unity of mind, a humble mind that said something like this. Well, here's what I believe is here's what I believe is the case in this instance. This is the context that I'm coming from. Here's my perspective, but I want you to know I could be wrong. Or I was wrong. Or let me listen first, and then I'll speak on this in a little bit. This attitude. What if Christians were so good at this that we couldn't help but do this with everyone we encounter in the world? And then, when a final resolution of all things comes and we look, and we look back, we'll be found as those who speak and have given words of blessing rather than those who jumped in and enjoyed the chaos. This is what Peter calls Christians to. Have a unity of mind, a low-mindedness, a humble mind. One way to pursue this, or a way to think about this, you could say to yourself something like this, no matter how convicted I am about a particular topic or subject or context right now, what information... If any, is there any information, any conversation, any place I could look that would even for the tiniest bit mold my mind? If the answer is no, then we need to grow. Now, he moves on. This this is a difficult task. This is what I mean. There's hours of discussion on this, and I'm sure there's a ton of caveats. We're going to move on because he goes on from unity of mind. I'm going to put a pin in this. Unity of mind. He goes on, and then he says, here's what you should have, sympathy. I think you're going to find very quickly that these are related. Sympathy means this, to share in suffering. That's the root of this word. What does sympathy mean? It means a common suffering. It means to have compassion for the suffering of those people around you. It means that Christians, because we received compassion from God, our instinct when other people exhibit or discuss or put forth suffering in our midst is not to look the other way or to blame or to, with pride or to, with relief and self-preservation, say, I'm so glad I'm not them. No, no, no. Peter says this, here's what you ought to have, a shared suffering, an ethic that says your burden is now my burden. I mourn with those who mourn. We walk with those who are carrying heavy burdens. That's what Christians do. And if we don't, then we have rejected and refused to be the blessing in the world that we've been called to be. So he says, all of you, all of you have sympathy. All of you seek to understand the burdens of the other. 
And this would include the people in all the different contexts of life that he just described in chapter 2 in the beginning of chapter 3. In addition to a kind of spirit, somehow truth-telling for Christians has gotten this weird spirit of like, I'll say it as loud as I can, and I'm not discussing this. If that's one issue, I'm not saying you do that, but I've heard of this. And then if a second issue is this idea or a second call for us is compassion, then I would say this is one of the most glaring deficits in many conversations in places that I see today. The moment And I don't know why we have a reaction to this. It's probably because we feel like we've been burned or careful to not get burned. But the moment some difficult situation comes up, a loss of life, an unjust use of violence, an experience of someone saying, I've been rejected or put down or set aside. So many times our immediate response is not to rush to and to say carry the burden, but instead to investigate with a kind of cynical non-compassionate, detached, I'm here to judge this situation. Now, I don't believe this is new. The reason Peter has to tell them to have sympathy with one another is because it's really hard to live in a world and examine all the suffering around you. It's very difficult to carry the cost of yourself, let alone others. But because we've been given life in Jesus and He's done this for us, we can do this for others. It's not a new thing. This was difficult for them It's difficult for us, and that's because this idea, any economic arrangement where someone else's burden becomes your burden is immediately on its face irresponsible and dumb. The cost-benefit analysis of this never works. Compassion is external, completely selfless. It is giving oneself away. It was difficult then, it's difficult now. Jesus even had to tell someone who wanted to do good Someone who wanted to, on his words and on his motives, say, I want to make a difference in the world. I want to do good. I want to be right with God. Jesus had to tell a whole parable concerning the instinct, the habit we should have of giving compassion. I think you know the setup for this parable. A distinguished, wealthy young man comes to Jesus. He's proud of himself. He thinks he's done well, but he wants to do better. He asks him, well, what is the most important thing to do in the world? How should I be? What kind of person can I be? And Jesus gives him basically a rundown of the great commandments. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's where I'm going to pick up the story in verse 29. We are to be people like this. This is what Jesus says. But he, this is the man inquiring, desiring to justify himself, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This man wants to count the cost ahead of time. He doesn't want to get in over his head. He says, hold on, what do you mean carry people's burdens? What do you mean love them? So who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw, that he passed, when he saw him, the half-dead man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. There's our word. There's our concept. He had sympathy. He had an instinct to share burden. It says the Samaritan had compassion. He went to him. 
He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the, the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Now, two things in this. The wonderful thing about Jesus' parables is that uh, some of them, I guess, need to be explained. This one doesn't need to be explained very often. I think the full weight of it is pretty obvious from the start. I want to make two comments, though. The first, I believe that Jesus ended this parable by saying to him, you go and do likewise, to make sure, to make sure that the lesson was not received as a mere theoretical moral one or a theological one. I've heard people preach this passage powerfully to the point where I wanted to be, I was moved by it. And I've often heard, especially in, in the Christian circles that I run in, I've often heard this shifted around as Jesus giving us a picture of us all being the lost and the fallen one who he came to rescue and he was the other, or that, you know, maybe flip-flopped how we Tree Jesus, and the, the idea here is, yes, there's a beautiful picture of salvation here and fallenness and lostness. But I want to say as clearly as possible, you cannot read the end of this parable and make this a mere allegory. It is not mere spiritual allegory. He says to the young man, you go and do likewise. The actions of the Samaritan in the story Jesus puts on and places all who would come after him. You must act in this manner. You must go. You must carry the burden. You must find those who are downtrodden, those who have been oppressed, those who have been beaten, those who have been subject to injustice. You find them. When you see them, you go and you offer compassion. Now, just as a second comment. Not necessarily specifics. I don't mean to be an exhaustive list, but I did want to note a few things the Samaritan did not do. And I believe that the whole concept of compassion, it does not allow us the following. I think that if you examine the following, that's what the priest and the Levite to not give compassion. But compassion on itself seems to be exhibited in this, mainly by the Samaritan not doing the following things. The Samaritan did not consider the half-dead man on the side of the road an unwelcome distraction to his normal life. He didn't use the excuse, I wasn't intending to help. The Samaritan also did not give an exhaustive list or an investigative interview about who the man was and what his particular past sins were. In order to offer compassion, the Samaritan did not ask the man, how did you get here? Do you have any witnesses? Was it your fault? The Samaritan did not think to himself, well, this man was clearly physically assaulted and really it would be unwise to go near him because the beater-upper people might still be there and I could be harmed, what kind of person would go in harm's way 
I'm just being wise. The Samaritan did not also consider his own cost prior to the instinct to show compassion. In fact, showing compassion itself forced him to say, of course it will cost me, that's what this means. And in this particular instance, he did not only, he he went to him, he went to him and spent more than he had. He went to him and spent more than he had. He got to the end of himself and what it took to bear the burden with this man, he had to look at the innkeeper and say, here's the deal, I've spent all that I have right now, but keep helping and I'll bring more later. This kind of sympathy, this kind of compassion, this kind of instinct to say where there is hurt and brokenness, where there is downtrodden people, where there has been evil and injustice, our first instinct is not to be investigative journalists who stay safely away because we're just being wise. We offer compassion. What if inside the church, what if Christians, because we're family together, what if Christians, because we've received this kind of love from Jesus, what if Christians had such a habit of doing this for one another that when we encountered people outside of the church, it was our instinct, it was inevitable that we would rush to those who have need, that we would mourn with those who are mourning. This is what the world means. And when you look back over the course of chaos in a world that is is in strife, my guess is it's these kind of people who will be called a blessing. And Peter says, yes, 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 be this kind of people. He goes on to define further, not only have sympathy, so now we have a pin in our unity of mind, the humbleness of our minds, but the sympathy of our offer. He says, show brotherly love. This could also be talked about for a million different minutes, not a million minutes, exaggerating. Exaggeration is the, it's the lifeblood of quality communication. But you, you get the point, not a million minutes. But Peter says brotherly love. That means you should love one another with a keen familial interest. And what this means is, is that Peter is telling us, he's borrowing brotherly love to show the kind of tribalism that is tempting and, and so prevalent in humans. You see, we, we love our own family with a ferocious approach to love. And what he says is, this is what we've been trained by the Spirit of God to do. We now apply that same kind of ferocious, keen interest of love to those around us. We reject tribalism. Well, those aren't my problems because those aren't my people. He says, here's what we should have, a brotherly love, an affection that is familial. We we are not willing to let the suffering of our own family go unnoticed. The question remains, what if Christians were in, in such a habit of living like this that others would receive this love? as well. He goes on to say, here's how this is going to happen. Here's the way that you have brotherly love for people and show compassion. You have the Spirit of God working in you to bring about a tender heart. I said if the lack of actual compassion was a glaring deficit in many's response to the, to the world around them, 
Perhaps the reason, maybe a lack of compassion is a mere symptom, and the reason is this, that so many of us have allowed the suffering of the world in our own lives, the hurt of our own lives, and the hurt from those around us, we have allowed it to harden our hearts. You see, our hearts are meant to be feeling. Our hearts are meant to be emotionally connected. Our hearts are meant to connect with other people. And what happens is that so many of us have made peace with cynicism and sarcasm as a way of navigating life. That a rejection of hope, a rejection of a loving word, we're simply unable to feel. So in the same way we are to pursue a unity of mind and to pursue compassion, we should check ourselves and say, over the last six months to a year, am I marked by a hardening my reaction toward others, especially those of need, or a softening. Because callousness, callousness is a cost of living in a fallen world, and it's one that's often left unchecked. See, our hearts are designed in such a way, they're supposed to be connecting and soft. When I think about the difference between, you know, a soft heart, a tender heart, and a hardened one, I just thought about, I thought about snow, so just bear with me. Some of you don't know, there's places in the world where rain comes down, it actually freezes on the way down, and then it falls as something white on the ground, it accumulates, you can play in it. So that's what snow is, if you've never seen it or played in it. But I imagine the difference between fresh snow that falls, right? Fresh snow that falls. There is some snow that falls that is so pleasant and wonderful, you could jump off a, a, ten, a 10-foot you know, cliff and just fall into it and it just go poof. And everyone imagines that kind of snow, the kind where you just dive and you jump and you just do snow angels, you know, that kind of thing. But you know what's funny about snow, and nobody ever mentions this? Over the course of time, when snow's on the ground for a long time, not only does it get slightly sort of dirty, but uh, we, we live in a wind-whipped world, a wind-whipped world. You know what's amazing is, is that sometimes the snow, as it gets piled on top of one another over and over and over again, and then it's being piled on top of one another over and over and over again, this, these snowflakes, and then the sun is beating down on them. The snowflakes start to change their, they, they change their, their DNA almost. They, they start to freeze and then refreeze and then freeze and then refreeze. And eventually, what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of the snow, the snow that stays in places where it does snow, snow, where it snows, it's not the kind of puffy, soft environment you think it is. In fact, in many places around my house as a kid when I grew up, the snowdrifts that were there, if you climbed to the top of a 10-foot ladder and said, I can't wait to jump in, this is going to be so pleasant, you'd break your hip. There is snow that gets so hardened, you can run across the top of it and barely see that your footprints are over the top. This happens, I believe, to many people's hearts slowly over the course of time. We live in a wind-whipped world. You will encounter suffering you will feel like you've given more than you can give. And Peter says, don't allow your heart to become calloused, but treat one another tenderly. Have a tender heart. If there's any benefit that you get from the news of the world, from the brokenness of the world around you, ask the Spirit of God to create in you a tender heart, one that doesn't turn off at the difficulty of others. Ultimately, he summarizes this by saying, don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling. 
Now, some of this could be discouraging. You could say, well, he assumes there's going to be evil that you're going to have to figure out. There's going to be reviling that you're going to have to endure. But on the contrary, we ought to bless. I want to say one small thing about this. Yes, it is true that the Bible tells us we should not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That is the ultimate good. I'd also just say, have you ever tried to do this? You ever tried to not resent someone? You ever tried to not repay evil? It's a very difficult thing. It's why it's commanded in Scripture. It's why Jesus is so glorious and praised for it. And so I think what happens, at least what I see in our world today, is that there are people who are encountering evil. They're being reviled in ways that we're not personally. And so we sit on the sidelines for a long time watching evil take place. But you know, And we're not really paying too much attention to that. But you know what we pay very close attention to? How they react in return. And there is an unbelievably large category of people who remain silent all the way through people's suffering. But then because they do not perfectly respond, and in many cases they do, they repay evil for evil. They revile when they've been reviled. And it's in that particular moment that all of a sudden people spring to action and say, you know, you really shouldn't repay evil for evil like that. And what I wonder for people in circumstances like that is, that, is this the standard by which you desire to be judged? The next time that someone wrongs you down to the core and you feel unbelievably undone and you feel anger boiling in your soul, are you ready for all the people around you to sit by and not say anything about what's causing you anger, but then the moment that you lash out, are you ready for the standard? Is the standard that you gave others the standard that you hope is applied to you? In other words, have you given grace? I don't believe we give very much grace in these circumstances but we are called to do so. Ultimately, the promise of 1 Peter chapter 3 is that if we would become these kind of people and let the Spirit of God cultivate this in us, within the church, and then let it spill out into our interactions outside of the world, then we would be those, so according to verse 11, he's quoting from Psalm 34, verses 10 to 12, that we would be those who, according to verse 11, those who are turning away from evil and doing good, those who seek peace and pursue it. Those who seek peace and pursue it. This is an active kind of Christianity. This does not mean those, that we should be those kind of people who appreciate peace when it comes. You know, hey, if, if it gets around to peace, that'd be great. No, we seek it out. We pursue it. We do not allow the conduct or the chaos of the world to mark our existence, to mark our churches, and to mark those around us. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. I want that blessing. I want that blessing for ourselves, and I want it for you. And I'm going to pray for us, because it is difficult to know exactly what does this look like. So here's going to be my prayer. I want to take this phrase in verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 3, and here's my prayer. God, teach us how to seek peace and pursue it, to actually know what this looks like, that we would commit to getting better at this in the months to come. Let's pray.